Welcome to the Church Leadership Podcast, your weekly source for encouraging and equipping local church leaders with your hosts, Mark Ganey and Andy Frazier. In each episode, Andy and Mark sit down with church leaders that you should know. We believe these honest conversations will be helpful and encouraging to you as you lead the local church. Here is this week's episode. Welcome to episode number 89 of the Church Leadership Podcast. We are so glad you have joined us on this episode. And as always, we've got a great conversation that's going to be encouraging and hopefully equip you to better lead in the local church. Before we get to that conversation, though, let me remind you to go subscribe to this podcast. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google or wherever you listen. And uh, you can go on YouTube as well uh, and, and subscribe to the video version of these podcasts. And uh, we don't want you to miss a single episode. We invite you to share our podcast on social media, get the word out. And uh, one easy way that you can help our podcast, if you're willing to do so, is to go over to ratethispodcast.com slash CLP and uh, give our podcast a rating. And uh, that would help us out. So thank you so much again for joining us today. Now, here's today's conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this week on the Church Leadership Podcast. We have a special guest with us this week. Kenneth Priest is joining us uh, and we are so grateful for Kenneth giving us some time today. Uh, Kenneth serves as a senior strategist there for cooperative ministries at the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. So he also serves uh, the, uh, at interim there and rector and founder of the Center for Church Revitalization at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week. And we're so glad to get to talk with you about something that Mark and I have uh, a passion for, and that's church revitalization. My pleasure. Glad to be with you guys. Well, just right off the top, Kenneth, um, you know, your part of your responsibility and really one of your passions is revitalization, and that's near and dear to uh, to my heart and Andy's heart. And so, tell us a little bit. You know, you, you've been serving in that role for a bit. Tell us some some of the stories or some of the successes you've seen uh, in your neck of the woods in terms of revitalization. Certainly, glad to. And uh, thanks, guys, for having me on today. Uh, glad to be a part of the conversation. Uh, yeah, out in uh, out in Texas, uh, the work that uh, we're doing uh, in intentional revitalization, uh, we've seen a, a number of great things happening. Uh, we've got uh, even in the midst of you know right now coming uh, through COVID. I won't say we're coming out of COVID, coming through COVID. Uh, I was talking with one of our revitalization pastors yesterday, who's engaged in our process, and uh, through COVID, uh, his church uh, was led to to start a food bank. Uh, ministry in order to, to serve the needy in the community. And uh, he actually was contacted by a, a, a resident in the community, wasn't even a church member, and said, uh, look, I, I would love to sponsor a work, but I don't have the space to do it. I need a facility to do this out of. And uh, just through that conversation and networking, uh, this church was able to launch this food bank, and it's being underwritten by a community business leader. Wow. Uh, and the church is getting the benefit from it. They've mm. seen uh, three professions of faith uh, over the past uh, four months come out of that, uh, along with uh, three additional families that have joined. And so the church, uh, when they launched in revitalization, they were averaging 12 uh, and uh, COVID hit in the midst of that. And uh, now they're still going through COVID, but they're running 24 right now. And so they basically doubled in attendance. Uh, and every visitor th that they've had since they launched the food bank has come as a direct result of the food bank. Wow. Uh, and so this is the church getting into the community, making Christ known and making their presence known through the bride of Christ 
uh, and it's having a kingdom growth impact. And so those are those are the types of stories that we're seeing taking place. We've got uh, you know another church that uh, has been engaged a little bit longer in the process of church revitalization with us. That when the pastor got there, they were running sixty. Uh, it was an, a senior adult Anglo church in a transitioned community, inner city of Houston. Uh, today, that church, about six years later, uh, they're running nearly 400. They are uh, a, a pretty diverse group of Anglo, Hispanic, and African-American, and it's pretty much one-third, 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 That's and awesome. generational diversity. So it's no longer just senior adults that are reaching all the generations. So we're just seeing all types of spectrum of conversations and church revitalization taking place, which really just kind of, you know, makes things exciting for the uh, the resurgence that's needed for the 70% of churches that are in a state of decline. Mm, absolutely. That, those are wonderful stories. Yeah, that's encouraging to hear. Um, you know, a lot of people who uh, began a work in a church that has experienced decline and uh lack of, of growth and health over years uh, would be discouraged thinking we only added 12 people, but for a congregation of 12 to double in size, I mean, that is a win. That's that huge. is a, a wonderful thing. And to hear God, how God's using them there in community ministry, you know, we're seeing a lot of that. Uh, Mark and I've talked and, and heard from a lot of church leaders. We're seeing that pre COVID and in the, in the middle of COVID right now, those are really healthy churches who are going into all of this, this craziness have kind of adapted and are beginning to kind of climb their way out and see some, some successful things happen and some, some structure and numbers begin to rebound. But those who are struggling prior to all of this, it has been a catalyst for them to really uh, begin to, to take on a lot of water at this point. So are you seeing that as well? That, uh, especially in the area of church revitalization, churches who maybe we're seeing they need revitalization, they need outside help, they need some kind of partnership or, or leadership or coaching or whatever. Are you seeing those churches maybe reach out to you more now than they did prior to COVID? Well, um, I wish the answer was yes, but I think we're at a, we're at a delay right now for those conversations. Um, most of those churches are still trying to figure out what's going on and what the outcome is going to be. I think that the, uh, the, the futurist in me sits back and looks at the numbers and says, yeah, we're going to have those conversations and they're going to be increased. But because we're still in the midst of it, uh, a lot of them are not reaching out. Uh, in fact, most of the, the, the churches that I've had communication with and, and DOMs that I've talked with, directors of missions, uh, the things they've shared with me is their churches are, are, you know, still in that hunker down mode. They're trying to, to take care of who they had. Um, so the church that was running 50 is now running 20 uh, and they're still trying to minister to the 30 and they're not really focused again on, on outreach in the community because they're trying to care for who's missing right now. And that's, you know, as a, in a most revitalization context, as you know, you're dealing with a bivocational ministry. And so, these bivocational pastors are trying to work and trying to shepherd the flock that was a part of the congregation. They've not had the time to open the doors yet. You know, over uh, Mark's, uh, I think it's his left shoulder there, there's the words connect to community. Uh, and that's kind of the key in revitalization. If you want to see the church turn around, you've got to connect to the community. And they're, they're really struggling to find those opportunities when they're having to spend so much of their time with all this other 
So I think that's still yet to be determined. I think uh, we'll see in the spring of 21, those phone calls increase. Uh, in fact, if I can put on my other hat for a moment through the Center for Church Revitalization, early on in this process, I uh, did some research on, on numbers. And so across the Southern Baptist Convention, we know that around seven to 900 churches close their doors every year. And so we started kind of forecasting out what that's going to look like and, and the, the status of churches uh, across North America and just in a health-wise and what their fiscal position was. Uh, and it looks like that, so that, that uh, we'll say 900 churches over the course of three years is 2,700 churches. Well, we think you're going to have to add another 25% to that uh, over mm-hmm. the course of, of uh, uh, three years. We think that 2,700 is going to escalate to 3,600. Uh, a lot of people were forecasting that was going to happen this year, but it's not going to happen in 2020. It's going to be 21 and 22 that we have the major uh, impact of COVID on the local church, especially the church that needed to be revitalized. And so I think that, that it's going to be next spring when we really start gearing up in revitalization to sit figuring out how are we going to address these present needs. And, and a part of my conversation uh, right now, in fact, um, the North American Mission Board through our replant team, uh, we're doing a conference in March uh, there in Alpharetta or, or in, in Atlanta. Uh, and one of the topics that they've asked me to address is this very issue. We're bringing a, an attorney as well as a foundation exec with us. And we're talking about uh, with directors of missions and, and other organizations that are involved state conventions, you've got to have a strategy for reclaiming property. Uh, mm-hmm. Because if, if we lose 3,600 churches, um, most associations and many state conventions are not in a position to reclaim that property and be able to actually hold on to it without it deteriorating. Um, and it's getting increasingly more difficult for uh, new churches to acquire property in major cities. Cities don't want to lose the tax revenue. They're making it difficult. They're making it hard for you to build buildings, things like that. And so if we lose a piece of property, reclaiming something, we're, we're never going to get it back. So we've mm. got to have a strategy for how to deal with this. And so I think the next uh Two years is really, 21-22 is really going to be key for church revitalization work across North America. Mm. That's that's huge. And and I, uh, and I know Andy does too. We agree 100%. We were out uh, visiting with a, a church planting partner in Denver a couple weeks ago. And not just Baptist churches, but we were just going in the area. And, you know, Colorado is not a very churched place, but there were church closures everywhere. I mean, everywhere. And uh, you're right, it's going to be even more so um, in the coming days. So, And I think that's a challenge that, that we need to think about. And, and like you said, we need to develop a strategy. Let me ask this, um, because, you know, you, you told a couple of stories uh, on the outset about some successes you've seen. What are some strategies that you have seen churches employ um, and I'm not talking about, you know, gimmicks or anything like that, but what are some long-term strategies that you have seen work um, for churches, not only in Texas, but elsewhere? Yeah, so just kind of a, a little backdrop. Uh, we do work uh, all across North America. The, the, te- the Southern Baptist of Texas have had partnerships uh, with the Hawaii Baptist Convention, uh, with Utah, Idaho, with Montana, with the Dakotas. Uh, we're presently in a partnership with Maryland, Delaware. And so uh, I've, I've been in all of these states working with them and helping them in revitalization and, and employing our methodology. Um, 
our, our strategy, our methodology, we do preaching for revitalization. Uh, it is preaching focused on great commission. Uh, mm. And it is true great commission. There's, a, there's been a disconnect uh, in Southern Baptist life for decades on the great commission. We like to talk about it. But typically when we talk great commission, we focus on evangelism. Yep. But when you, when you break it down, uh, it's evangelism and discipleship. That's right. Uh, and according to the Great Commission, it is both. And we're not supposed to split that atom, but yet we keep doing that in Southern And so what we've done is said we're focusing on preaching for the Great Commission, preaching for evangelism and discipleship. And so our strategy is engaging with churches and helping them figure out, number one, it, it's driven through the, the pulpit. We do sermon-based small group as our church revitalization methodology. Uh, and so we, we believe that if you kind of go back and, and for anybody that's heard me speak in, in other environments, they will have heard this illustration before, but you guys haven't. So we'll go back to, you know, you go back to Nehemiah chapter eight and you walk through what's taking place there. The, Ezra is going to open the scroll and read it. So they build him up. They build him a pulpit to stand on, right? So he stands up to proclaim the word. He reads the word of God uh, and the people respond. They respond in several different ways. They, they, they stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Uh, they are broken and they weep over the reading of God's word. Uh, and then it says, as you move on past verse uh, 8, 9, 10, uh, it says that uh, he names out 12 men, says, and the Levites. And so these 12 men and the Levites, they break the people up in groups. It says, then they go around and they teach and explain what was just read to them. Well, to me, this is sermon-based small groups. You're going to proclaim the word of God. If you do text-driven preaching, that means you're preaching straight from the text. And then we're going to break down into small groups uh, and discuss what was just preached to them, what was just read to them. But if you continue reading through Nehemiah 8, we remember that uh, a couple of feasts were celebrated that haven't been celebrated in some generations. And of course, you go back and study the, the, the culture of the Hebrew people at this time. And, and feasts were a familial gathering. It was led through the family. It was celebrated by the community, but it was led through the family. It was very patriarchal in nature. And so when we go back and, and apply this context to the New Testament church today, uh, we look at Nehemiah 8, and we see the proclamation, the opening of the Word of God. We see the explanation, the, the teaching in small groups, uh, but then we need to move into the family unit. And for us, the family unit is that, that local church, the koinonia, the fellowship that's happening in, in true small group. You know, Jesus modeled this as well in the New Testament. You look over in Mark chapter 13, and that's a good example, and you see it kind of throughout the Gospels it says that Jesus taught on the mountainside to the multitudes. And so that was the crowd. And so compare it to Nehemiah 8, Ezra read to the crowd. And then says that, that Jesus would then turn to his disciples and explain what was meant to them. And so that's moving into community, just like the Levites and the 12 move them into community. So we go from crowd to community. But then we see a couple of times where Jesus moves off with an inner circle of three, a core. I love uh, you know, giving pastors their three C's, crowd, community, and core. Uh, and so Jesus moved into a core, just like in, in the, uh, the, the nation of Israel moved into their core that was the family unit. And so I think the New Testament church has got to develop its discipling strategy on the same path. You've got to have your community, your crowd, and your core. And so that's honoring uh, the discipleship element of the Great Commission. But then if the church, if the pastor is preaching evangelistically, he's ensuring that he's giving an invitation. Now, look, I, I'm a big fan of an altar call invitation, but even if you don't do an altar call, you 
you know, study scripture and it says, you know, every time Jesus proclaimed the word, he gave an option for a response. We need to give people. So if you're going to use a connection card, got to do something. People need to be told what to do. How am I supposed to respond to this? Uh, Ezra uh, read through the scriptures and reminded them of the feast. And so they knew they needed to respond to what was heard by celebrating the feast, which is a celebration. You go back to the feast, they celebrate the feast of booths, tabernacles. They needed to once again, remember what God had done for them. And so we need to respond that way as well through a core opportunity uh, which is discipling and evangelism. And so it's the great commission, but it all started with the proclamation of the word. That's right. Well, you know, you're, you're speaking our language. We, we use the term disciple making because we, yes. we believe evangelism and discipleship are together and they're, they're never meant to be separated. And so, uh, you know, Andy and I talk a lot about the, a pathway uh, to make disciples. And, and that's exactly what you're talking about. We, you know, churches have to develop that. It's got to be intentional. You know, this stuff doesn't happen by accident. So um, that's good stuff. Yeah. So yeah. you asked strategy, that's the strategy. Uh, and that's what we've employed. And, and the great thing about it is uh, when you use that methodology, uh, if, if the pastor is functioning as the cultural exegetical expert, which is what he's supposed to be in his context, that means this is transferable to any culture. And so we use this in our African-American churches. We use it in our Hispanic churches. I've not had any Korean churches, uh, but we do have it translated, our material translated in Korean, uh, because we do have 70 or 80 Korean churches that are related with us. So if any of them wanted to engage in Korean, they could. I have had a church in Hawaii uh, that has a Korean congregation that have used our material uh, for that. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it translates as long as the pastor is being the cultural exegetical expert in his context. Well, that's, that's uh, very crucial. It's very important. As a matter of fact, you're talking about having a strategy and having resources to put your hands on. As a matter of fact, what we'd like to do, Kenneth, if it's all with you in our show notes is uh, link a way for people to contact you or get a hold of some of those resources that you guys uh, offer so that they can see, you know, what's happening. Um, it's, it's crazy to think that there are churches out there who maybe have a vague understanding of what the mission of the church is, but they don't have a strategy that is, uh, crafted for their context, you know, uh, and do you believe that's, that has a lot to do with maybe, uh, some decline or some, uh, issues that churches have, it, especially right now. I mean, if you don't have a defined, clear path for for sharing the gospel with somebody, leading them to Christ, discipling them, and then enabling them and equipping them to go and make disciples themselves. I mean, uh, that's really magnified now if that's not happening in your church. It is. So, so you know, the, the, the key, in my opinion, uh, the, the key issue there is uh, this issue of strategy, all right? We've got to have an intentional strategy process. Now, using that terminology actually does scare some people because you hear the word strategy and you go, well, that's a business principle. So there's two, two responses to strategy in the, in the negative. There's more than two, but two in the negative. One is that's a business principle. We don't want to bring that into the church. That's not spiritual. Uh, the second one that's, that's negative is that's too confusing I just want to preach the gospel and, and move forward. Well, you know, praise God, that is a strategy, preaching the gospel. But the question is, are you actually preaching the gospel? Um, if, if you're claiming to be preaching the gospel, uh, 
that includes uh, inviting people to church. The good news is something you tell. And so you're supposed to be bringing people to church. If all you're doing is getting up on Sunday morning and preaching and expecting people to get saved, um, that's probably not going to happen because there's probably not any lost people left in your congregation. You know, you're down to 18 people. You know the testimony of every single one of them. They're not inviting anybody. You're not inviting anybody. It really doesn't do any good to try to give an invitation in that type of environment. The whole point of the invitation is because there's lost people present. There's people that need to respond to God's word in a, in a, in a powerful way. So it means we actually have to be about the business of inviting people in. Now, inviting people in looks a little different. Of course, back in the, the 70s and 80s, you grew a church by, by building a church and just telling the people the doors are open, come, uh, which is actually a very Catholic model. If you go back and, and study history, uh, Catholicism, uh, you know, the, the, the radical thing about St. Patrick uh, when he went to Ireland was he was not going to build a church and invite people to come in. Uh, his entire missional philosophy was, I want to, to go out among the people, uh, lead them to Christ, and then start a work in their midst. And so it was a church planting model that needed to be done. Well, that's what we need to be doing here in uh, the United States as well. And there's still a mindset, though, of functioning like we did in the 70s and 80s to build something and they will come. It's not the field of dreams. Uh, it's the hospital of hope. And so we need to be out in the community calling the sick in and, and pulling them to the church, which means I may have to have a triage unit that goes out to lead them to Christ uh, and then disciple them to a point that we lead them into the church uh, and then bringing them in. And so preaching the gospel in itself is a strategy, but it could be a bad strategy if you're not connecting it to your outreach mechanism to actually draw people in, kind of casting that net there's a lot of different tools, if you don't mind me taking a moment to kind of shift in that direction. So we're moving into what's kind of considered the, the high holy day season, right? I mean, we're, we're moving past uh, uh, Halloween's coming up a couple of weeks, but we're going to move into Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so we have the Advent season. Uh, Dr. O.S. Hawkins, uh, president of Guidestone, released a book a couple of years ago called The Christmas Code. Uh, it's a little daily devotion through the Advent. Uh, and that is a great outreach tool in the community. They cost 99 cents a piece when you buy them in bulk. Now, for us as pastors, it's a great resource because every book Dr. Hawkins writes supports mission dignity, which supports our, our pastors and widows and missionaries that do not have a retirement. They can get some money from, from mission dignity. So it's a great missional giving opportunity, but it's also a missional outreach opportunity to use that book. And so this is what we use in revitalization. So I've got a church, uh, actually two churches out in Athens, Texas, that did this last year. So, and, and we've got, you know, 30 or 40 churches that use this model. This is the story of two of them in the same community doing this. They go out knocking on doors, passing out uh, the Christmas code book. And, and what we encourage the pastors is you develop a sermon series on the Christmas code. So you preach the Advent through December and have your people pass out copies of this book. So what I tell pastors, look, you buy five copies for every church member. That means if you don't have the budget to do this, you just ask every church member, give us $5. We're going to give you five books. One is for your family, and four is to pass out in the community and invite people to church. Uh, and so it moves them into a time of outreach and invitation with a gift that's about Christmas. Well, he's done the same thing at Easter. It's called the Easter Code. He has a lentil reading that starts on, on Ash Wednesday and, and runs all the way through Easter to do the same thing. And so you've got two high holy days 
that are just a few months apart that a pastor can develop an intentional outreach strategy centered around a gift. And so for $10, you can go out into the community and draw people in. Well, these two churches out in Athens were doing this. They did this model of buying everybody five copies. Well, one church baptized 12 people. The church is running 40 something, and now it's running 52 because it reached and baptized 12 people and assimilated them into the church. The other one baptized seven people. And so through the holiday season of Christmas, they reached 12 and seven people. So that's 19 people in this one community that are now in heaven that were not uh, at Christmas last year, but they're using. So there are these tools that we can use that can help us, even as a bivocational pastor, Andy, you know, you're you're, you're busy uh, shoeing horses and, and you're sitting there going, how am I going to get out there? Well, you know, uh, farmer, uh, farmer John brings his horse by to, to be shooed. And while you're sitting there, you say, hey, man, I got a book for you. Uh, take it. I'd love for you to have it. Hey, by the way, we're preaching this sermon series at my church. Why don't you come visit us? It's just easy outreach to engage with uh, Mark over your shoulder again, connecting to the community. Yep. I think you know, what we're hearing loud and clear, and I think it is so true, is it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be slick. It doesn't have to be expensive. We're talking about simple ways. And you mentioned a couple tools. There are so many simple tools that that anyone, any church, no matter your size, can, can have an impact. And I love that you share those stories because it makes it, I think it really makes it real in in the hearts of our listeners that, you know what, God can use you and your church no matter what that church is like. And so real quick, as we close uh, our time, again, thank you. Thank you so much, Kenneth, for being here and being our guest. Um, if there's somebody listening today that may be that normative church that that they're looking at 2021 and they're thinking, you know, our church ain't going to make it. Um, I don't know if I have the energy. I don't know if I have the time. I don't, you know, I don't know if I have the resources to to continue this. But they have a heart for the community. They have a heart for their people. Maybe, maybe what would you tell them if you were in the room with them, just you and them, uh, to encourage them um, for the road ahead? What, what's maybe something you could tell them to to encourage them to keep on? Well, uh, I may not be the the right person to ask uh, how to encourage somebody because. Uh, uh, my conversations when we're in that context are actually uh, could be seen as a little discouraging uh, because my first question to a pastor is uh, if, if you feel like that you don't have it in you and you're, you're guessing, should you throw in the towel, so to speak? Uh, I, I have to ask the first question is, you know, can you commit to this for three years? Mm. Uh, if you can't commit it to it for three years, uh, we can't turn it around. Uh, and therefore, maybe you do need to pray about going somewhere else. And so that's not very encouraging. Uh, in fact, uh, my second follow-up conversation uh, question is, are you prepared to be fired over this? Mm. Uh, here's the reality. Uh, you could go about the business of reaching people for Jesus and have a massive community impact and get fired from your church. That's right. Because as soon as that core group of people realizes that you've led more people to Jesus that can now outvote them, (laughs) they could make a move to get rid of you. Sure. Uh, Secondly, you could have a group of people that surround you and say, you're reaching the wrong kind of people for our church. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's sad and it's unfortunate, but both of those are true statements. And so if you're not willing to be fired over this, maybe this is not something you should engage in either. 
so you got to make sure you're willing to commit to the three years and you got to make sure that this is what God has called you to do. And you're willing to lay it on the line and know that God will provide and God will take care of you no matter the outcome. Mm -hmm. And if you can rest in the certainty of your calling and rest in the assurance that God will embolden you and give you the strength for the coming years, then it's time to, to put your shoulder to the plow mm. and we can do something here and we can get to work. You know, I, I, and I'm not being critical of guys that, that lead churches to, to replant. So don't hear me being criticizing that, but I tell people all the time, replanting is the worst thing you can do for a church. Uh, because in a replant situation, you're usually giving the keys, cash and constitution to somebody else and letting them take over. And as Southern Baptists, we're autonomous congregations. And so my goal is to see the autonomous local church not survive, but thrive. Mm. And so even in a church that I'm working with right now that's down to eight people, uh, if you own your building and you don't have any debt, there are models and strategies out there that you don't have to replant. You can revitalize with eight people. You can connect to the community and see significant impact for gospel conversations and we can help you guide you through the process. Now here's, here's the reality. Um, you have to do the work. I can't come in and do the work for you. Uh, no one else can come in. You cannot hire a consultant to come in and do the work for you. You have to do the work. And here's the reality. The eight people that you've got, they may be willing to do whatever you ask, but usually you got down to these eight people because nobody was willing to do the work. And so you can't depend on those eight. You have to depend on you are doing the work of the evangelist and you are going out and God is going to turn the church around through the labor that you are doing. Mm. Now it's God's decision, how everything works, but he uses the, the tool that's available and you're the tool. So let him use you sit in the master's hand and just do what he leads you to do. So I don't know if that's encouraging, but that's the conversation that I would have. Oh, I think that's very encouraging. I think what you just mentioned, it may seem harsh or or uh, maybe uh, not encouraging, like you said, to some. But to those who are committed to staying, who are committed to honoring the Lord and fearing Him over people, and who are uh, committed to doing the work that it takes, uh, that is encouraging because there are guys out there doing those things and we're so grateful for them and their commitment to, to God and to how, how Christ has equipped them and gifted them to lead uh, through revitalization. Definitely. And see, these are the guys that we need to be celebrating. Look, I, you know, I, I'm proud of the guy that came, and we were talking about this off offline before we started recording, you know, but, but the guy that goes into a, a, a church that's running 400 that has a budget and, you know, it used to run 800 or 1,000, and he's turning it around, and he's got it back up to 700, 800. You know, praise God, that's wonderful. But the real heroes are the guys that are going in into the normative church, that that church has always ran 20 or 30 or 40, and it got down to 15, and he's turning it around to run 20 or 30 or 40 once again, and maybe even beyond that. That's the heroes. The normative churches, you know, in Southern Baptist life, 80-whatever percent of our churches uh, are normative. And, and so those are the guys that that's, that's who I'm trying to help through the center, who I'm trying to help at the SBTC. Uh, larger churches with a big, big budget that hires multiple staff, they can put a team together to revitalize that church. But the pastor that's bivocational out there working by himself, 
like you guys are out there doing. Uh, they're the ones that need the resources. They're the ones that need the guide to come alongside them. And, and, you know, it's like when you go on a fishing expedition, you know, you want to go try to figure it out for yourself or do you want a guide to come along and show you the best places to fish? Uh, that's what we want to be. We want to be the guide that's coming alongside you and, and showing you where to fish. Well said. Great analogy. Well, Kenneth, thank you again so much for joining us. We appreciate it. And uh, I know that everyone listening today has been encouraged and equipped to lead the local church. So we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Church Leadership Podcast. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and even review our podcast on your favorite podcast listening app. 